Chapter Twenty of Summa Contra Gentiles, First Book on God, by Saint Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, that God is not a body. From the foregoing, we are also able to prove that God is not a body. For since every body is a continuous substance it is composite and has parts now god is not composite as we have shown therefore he is not a body further every quantitative substance is somehow in potentiality for that which is continuous is potentially divisible to infinity and number can be infinitely augmented now every body is a quantitative substance therefore every body is in potentiality but god is not in potentiality but is pure act as shown above therefore god is not a body again if god were a body he would needs be a physical body for a mathematical body does not exist by itself as the philosopher proves since dimensions are accidents now he is not a physical body for he is immovable as we have proved and every physical body is movable therefore god is not a body moreover every body is finite which is proved in regard both to spherical and to rectilinear bodies in the first book of celi et mundi now we are unable by our intellect and imagination to soar above any finite body wherefore if god were a body our intellect and imagination would be able to think of something greater than god and thus god would not exceed our intellect which is inadmissible therefore he is not a body furthermore intellective knowledge is more certain than sensitive now among natural things we find some that are objects of sense therefore there are also some that are objects of intellect but the order of powers is according to the order of objects in the same way as their distinction therefore above all sensible objects there is an intelligible object existing in natural things but every body that exists among things is sensible therefore above all bodies it is possible to find something more excellent wherefore if god were a body he would not be the first and supreme being again a living thing is more excellent than any body devoid of life now the life of a living body is more excellent than the body since thereby it excels all other bodies therefore that which is excelled by nothing is not a body but such is god therefore he is not a body moreover we find the philosophers proving the same conclusion by arguments based on the eternity of movement as follows in all everlasting movement the first mover must needs not be moved neither per se nor accidentally as we have proved above now the body of the heavens is moved in a circle with an everlasting movement therefore its first mover is not moved neither per se nor accidentally now no body causes local movement unless itself be moved 
because moved and mover must be simultaneous and thus the body that causes movement must be itself moved in order to be simultaneous with the body that is moved moreover no power in a body causes movement except it be moved accidentally since when the body is moved the power of that body is moved accidentally therefore the first mover of the heavens is neither a body nor a power residing in a body now that to which the movement of the heavens is ultimately reduced as to the first immovable mover is god therefore god is not a body again no infinite power is a power residing in a magnitude but the power of the first mover is an infinite power therefore it does not reside in a magnitude and thus god who is the first mover is neither a body nor a power residing in a body the first proposition is proved as follows if a power residing in a magnitude be infinite this magnitude is either finite or infinite but there is no infinite magnitude as proved in the third book of physics and in the first book of Chely et mundi and it is not possible for a finite magnitude to have an infinite power therefore in no magnitude can there be an infinite power that there cannot be an infinite power in a finite magnitude is proved thus a great power produces in less time an equal effect which a lesser power produces in more time of whatever kind this effect may be whether it be one of alteration of local movement or of any other kind of movement now an infinite power surpasses every finite power it follows therefore that it produces its effect more rapidly by causing a more rapid movement than any finite power nor can this greater rapidity be one of time therefore it follows that the effect is produced in an indivisible point of time and thus moving being moved and movement will be instantaneous the contrary of which has been proved in the sixth book of physics that an infinite power of a finite magnitude cannot cause movement in time is proved thus let a be an infinite power and a b a part thereof this part therefore will cause movement in more time and yet there must be proportion between this time and the time in which the whole power causes movement since both times are finite suppose then these two times to be in proportion as one to ten for it does not affect this argument whether we take this or any other ratio now if we increase the aforesaid finite power we must decrease the time in proportion to the increase of the power since a greater power causes movement in less time if therefore we increase it tenfold that power will cause movement in a time which will be one-tenth of the time occupied by the first part that we took of the infinite power namely a b and yet this power which is ten times the aforesaid power is a finite power since it has a fixed proportion to a finite power it follows therefore that a finite power and an infinite power cause movement in an equal time which is impossible therefore 
an infinite power of a finite magnitude cannot cause movement in any time. That the power of the first mover is infinite is proved thus. No finite power can cause movement in an infinite time. Now the power of the first mover causes movement in an infinite time, since the first movement is eternal. Therefore the power of the first mover is infinite. The first proposition is proved thus. If any finite power of a body causes movement in infinite time, a part of that body having a part of that power will cause movement during less time, since the greater power a thing has, for so much the longer time will it be able to continue a movement, and thus the aforesaid part will cause movement in finite time, and a greater part will be able to cause movement during more time. And thus, always according as we increase the power of the mover, we increase the time in the same proportion. But if this increase be made a certain number of times, we shall come to the quantity of the whole or even go beyond it. Therefore the increase also on the part of the time will reach the quantity of time wherein the whole causes movement. And yet the time wherein the whole causes movement was supposed to be infinite. Consequently, a finite time will measure an infinite time, which is impossible. However, there are several objections to this chain of reasoning. One of these is that it might be held that the body which moves the first thing moved is not divisible, as is the case of a heavenly body, whereas the argument given above supposes it to be divided. To this we reply that a conditional clause may be true though its antecedent be impossible. And if there be anything to disprove such a conditional, the antecedent is impossible. Thus, if anyone disprove this conditional, if a man flies, he has wings, the antecedent would be impossible. It is in this way that we are to understand the process of the aforesaid reasoning. For this conditional is true, if a heavenly body be divided, its part will have less power than the whole. But this conditional is disproved if we suppose that the first mover is a body on account of the impossibilities that follow. Wherefore, it is clear that this is impossible. We can reply in the same way if objection be made to the increase of finite powers. Because it is impossible in natural things to find powers according to any proportion that there is between one time and any other time. And yet the conditional required in the aforesaid argument is true. The second objection is that, although a body be divided, it is possible for a power of a body not to be divided when the body is divided. Thus the rational soul is not divided when the body is divided. To this we reply that by the above argument it is not proved that God is not united to the body as the rational soul is united to the human body, but that he is not a power residing in a body as a material power which is divided when the body is divided. Wherefore, it is also said of the human intellect that it is neither a body nor a power in a body. That God is not united to the body as its soul is another question. The third objection is that if the power of every body is finite, 
as is proved in the above process and if a finite power cannot make its effect to endure an infinite time it will follow that no body can endure an infinite time and consequently that a heavenly body will be necessarily corrupted some reply to this that a heavenly body in respect of its own power is defectible but acquires everlastingness from another that has infinite power apparently plato approves of this solution for he represents god as speaking of the heavenly bodies as follows by your nature ye are corruptible but by my will incorruptible because my will is greater than your necessity confer the timaeus forty one but the commentator refutes this solution in the eleventh book of metaphysics for it is impossible according to him that what in itself may possibly not be should acquire everlastingness of being from another since it would follow that the corruptible is changed into incorruptibility and this in his opinion is impossible wherefore he replies after this fashion that in a heavenly body whatever power there is is finite and yet it does not follow that it has all power for according to aristotle in the eighth book of metaphysics the potentiality to be somewhere is in a heavenly body but not the potentiality to be and thus it does not follow that it has a potentiality to not be it must be observed however that this reply of the commentator is insufficient because although it be granted that in a heavenly body there is no quasi-potentiality to be which potentiality is that of matter there is nevertheless in it a quasi-active potentiality which is the power of being since aristotle says explicitly in the first book celi et mundi that the heaven has the power to be always hence it is better to reply that since power implies relation to act we should judge of power according to the mode of the act now movement by its very nature has quantity and extension wherefore its infinite duration requires that the moving power should be infinite on the other hand being has no quantitative extension especially in a thing whose being is invariable such as the heaven hence it does not follow that the power of being a finite body is infinite though its duration be infinite because it matters not whether that power make a thing to last for an instant or for an infinite time since that invariable being is not affected by time except accidentally the fourth objection is that the statement that what causes movement in infinite time must have an infinite power does not necessarily apply to those movers which are not altered by moving because such a movement consumes nothing of their power wherefore they can cause movement for no less time after they have moved for a certain time than before thus the power of the sun is finite and because its power is not diminished on account of its action it can act on this lower world for an infinite time according to nature to this we reply that a body moves not unless it be moved as we have shown therefore supposing a body not to be moved it follows that it does not move 
Now in anything that is moved, there is potentiality to opposites, since the terms of movement are opposite to one another. Consequently, considered in itself, every body that is moved is possibly not moved, and that which is possibly not moved is not apt of itself to be moved for an everlasting time, and consequently neither is it apt to move for a perpetual time. Accordingly, the demonstration given above is based on the finite power of a finite body, which power cannot of itself move in an infinite time, but a body which of itself is possibly moved and not moved, and possibly moves and does not move, can acquire perpetual movement from some cause, and this cause must needs be incorporeal. Wherefore, the first mover must needs be incorporeal. Hence, according to nature, nothing hinders a finite body which acquires from another cause perpetuity in being moved, from having also perpetuity in moving, since also the first heavenly body, according to nature, can cause a perpetual circular movement in the lower bodies according as one sphere moves another. Nor is it impossible, as the commentator maintains, for that which is of itself in potentiality to being moved and not moved, to acquire perpetual movement from something else as he supposed it impossible as regards perpetuity of being. For movement is a kind of outflow from the mover to the thing movable, and consequently a movable thing can acquire perpetual movement from something else without having it by nature. On the other hand, to be is something fixed and quiescent in a being, and consequently that which is, of itself, in potentiality to not be, cannot, as he says, in the course of nature, acquire from something else perpetuity of being. The fifth objection is that, according to the above reasoning, there does not appear to be more reason why there should not be an infinite power in a magnitude than outside a magnitude, for in either case it would follow that it moves in not time. To this it may be replied that finite and infinite are found in a magnitude, in time and in movement, in a univocal sense, as proved in the third and sixth books of physics, wherefore the infinite in one of them removes a finite proportion in the others, whereas in things devoid of magnitude there is neither finite nor infinite, unless equivocally. Hence the above course of reasoning has no place in such like powers. But another and better answer is that the heaven has two movers. One is its proximate mover, which is of finite power, and thence it is that its movement is of finite velocity. The other is its remote mover, which is of infinite power, whence it is that its movement can be of infinite duration. Thus it is clear that an infinite power which is not in a magnitude can move a body not immediately in time, whereas a power which is in a magnitude must needs move immediately, since no body moves without itself being moved. Wherefore, if it moved, it would follow that it moves in not time. Better still, it may be replied that a power which is not in a magnitude is an intellect 
and moves by its will wherefore it moves according to the requirement of the movable and not according to the proportion of its strength on the other hand a power that is in a magnitude cannot move save by natural necessity for it has been proved that the intellect is not a bodily force wherefore it causes movement necessarily according to the proportion of its quantity hence it follows that if it moves anything it moves it instantaneously in this sense then the foregoing objections being refuted proceeds the reasoning of aristotle moreover no movement that proceeds from a bodily mover can be continuous and regular because a bodily mover in local movement moves by attraction or repulsion and that which is attracted or repelled is not disposed in the same way towards its mover from the beginning to the end of the movement since at one time it is nearer to it and at another time further from it and thus no body can cause a continuous and regular movement on the other hand the first movement is continuous and regular as is proved in the eighth book of physics therefore the mover of the first movement is not a body again no movement that tends towards an end which passes from potentiality to actuality can be perpetual since when it arrives at actuality the movement ceases if therefore the first movement is perpetual it must be towards an end which is always and in every way actual now such is neither a body nor a power residing in a body because these are all movable either per se or accidentally therefore the end of the first movement is not a body nor a power residing in a body now the end of the first movement is the first mover which moves as the object of desire and that is god therefore god is neither a body nor a power residing in a body now though according to our faith it is false that the movement of the heavens is everlasting as we shall show further on it is nevertheless true that the movement will not cease either on account of lack of power in the mover or on account of the substance of the movable being corrupted since we do not find that the movement of the heavens slackens in the course of time wherefore the aforesaid proofs lose nothing of their efficacy the truth thus demonstrated is in accordance with divine authority for it is said in john chapter 4 verse 24 god is a spirit and they that adore him must adore him in spirit and in truth and again in first timothy 1 17 to the king of ages immortal invisible the only god and in romans 1 20 the invisible things of god are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made for things that are clearly seen not by the eye but by the mind are incorporeal hereby is refuted the error of the early natural philosophers who admitted none but material causes such as fire water and the like and consequently asserted that the first principles of things were bodies and called them gods among these also there were some who held that the causes of movement were sympathy and antipathy and these again are refuted by the above arguments for since according to them sympathy and antipathy are in bodies 
it would follow that the first principles of movement are forces residing in a body. They also asserted that God was composed of the four elements and sympathy from which we gather that they held God to be a heavenly body. Among the ancients, Anaxagoras alone came near to the truth, since he affirmed that all things are moved by an intellect. By this truth, moreover, those heathens are refuted who maintained that the very elements of the world and the forces residing in them are gods. For instance, the sun, moon, earth, water, and so forth, being led astray by the errors of the philosophers mentioned above. Again, the above arguments confound the extravagances of the unlettered Jews, of Tertullian, of the Vadiani, or anthropomorphite heretics, who depicted God with human features, and again of the Manichees, who affirmed God to be an infinite substance composed of light and spread abroad throughout boundless space. The occasion of all these errors was that in their thoughts about divine things they had recourse to their imagination, which can reflect none but corporeal likenesses. Wherefore it behooves us to put the imagination aside when we meditate on things incorporeal. End of chapter 20 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.